One of the universal truths that I have come to appreciate about us as humans is that regardless of every identifier, we all want to know we matter. We are social beings and we crave to know that we matter. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of the people behind some of the world's leading companies, movements, and ideas. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, or check us out at commonthreadsmedia.com. I'm your host, David Swain. On today's show, we talk helicopter parenting and the state of race in America with a woman who knows both. Julie Lithcott-Hames is a longtime Stanford University dean and author of New York Times bestseller, How to Raise an Adult, and her new book, Real American, a memoir where Julie goes deep into her life story to confront some of society's biggest challenges around race and finding your voice. Two years after writing your first book, have any of your perceptions or your views that you went into writing that book with, how have they evolved over the last few years? I didn't realize how much of a helicopter parent I was. Hmm. That's probably been the most profound learning. I knew I was. I had my aha moments that I write about in the book. I was a dean at Stanford going, what the heck? Like, what is going on? Why are these undergraduates still seemingly on a leash? You know, best and brightest, but penned in, hemmed in, and delighted to be told what to do, delighted to, you know, have parents showing up and... I was so frustrated, and I knew enough about the human psyche to know if I'm frustrated by this, it's probably telling me something about myself, you know. I knew that I was on track to raise my kids the way that I was now criticizing other people for doing. But over the two and a half years I've been touring this book, I've dived deeper into my own narrative as a parent and have been able to see the subtleties of my own behaviors, you know, the moments of language, the, the small movements that encroach upon our kids' autonomy and individuality. Mm. And I can feel, because I'm kind of a mindfulness practitioner, I can feel in me the rising anxiety about if I don't tell them what to do, they might not do it right, they might not do it well, it might not happen. And so I'm intrigued to be, you know, the sort of putative or one of the putative experts on this subject about what not to do, still struggling with my own urge to do what I know we shouldn't do. And so then it becomes the dance between what I theoretically know is right and wrong versus what I in practice can actually achieve. And trying to be the parent, the author in me, you know, knows I should be. Where do you think that all the access to information, you kind of know the right thing when it turns into action? What have you found for you? Because like, it is like a shifting in behavior yeah. as an adult, which is really hard to do. Yeah. So what have I found for me is the trigger for the wrong behavior or enables me to produce the right enables behavior? Enables you to produce the right behavior. Um, reminding myself that this that I will not be here always for this kid. Yeah. And this kid, I might be able to achieve in these five minutes something for him. It's the parable of teach him to fish. You know, I will not be here to provide them with whatever solutions I am, you know, currently trying to offer. And the greater love is to make them learn to do it themselves. That it is not less loving, it is more loving to put them through the paces so that they learn the steps, 
so that one day they have competence, so that one day further they have mastery. That's when I can take the deepest exhale as a parent and say, I have raised my children to adulthood. They do not need me to handle the stuff of life Mm -hmm. for them. Have you seen, because of your book and other books like it, that we're starting to make progress or do you see us continuing to go down? You know, first of all, I'm only invited to communities that want to talk about this. In Mm -hmm. some ways, I have a big choir problem. You know, I show up and I've got people willing to talk about this. And among those communities in that subset of the larger community, I can see shifts taking place. I see less defensiveness around my message. Again, I don't know, though, if that's because two years in, people are more receptive or because I'm telling the story in a way that's more compelling. I've gone to much more of a storytelling format where I tell about my own struggles as a parent. Mm -hmm. And the lessons are sort of deduced rather than me speaking at a lessons level. I don't know if, if I'm perceiving an actual shift or if I'm just showing up with a more effective message that makes people more resonant in the moment. I will say that more and more communities seem very, very worried about the poor mental health of their young. And when I'm invited to be a part of that dialogue wherever, I am blunt about the fact that our definition of success, our definition of what makes a human worthy of respect, we are sending such a narrow message to our kids about what those things look like. And in communities like yours and mine and plenty, plenty others, kids feel a degree of helplessness over their ability to achieve that for themselves, you know, and a hopelessness about their future if they don't achieve that. We are quite literally in some places reducing kids' worth and value to their GPA and test scores. And so they do not feel unconditionally loved. And and so in more and more communities nowadays, it seems to me, people, because they've had a spike in, you know, some troubling behaviors around unwellness of kids, they're attuned to the unwellness, then they want to know what to do about it. And they want to, and if it's acute enough, then they allow themselves to have that big picture epiphany, which is, oh, wait a minute, none of this matters. What matters is my kid's wellness. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when people get cancer, when there's a death in the family, when there's someone loses their job, when my kid has suicidal ideation, I can say, okay, none of this matters. What matters is that we connect, that we have a meal together, that we enjoy each other's company, we take an interest in each other's day. I guess what I'm trying to say is I do sense that that aha concern level is being experienced in a number of communities. I mean, what it means is more and more young people are less and less well, and parents are finally waking up to the kind of consequences of this very rigid, penned in, hemmed in, everything is high stakes childhood. There's, there's so many factors at play because everything's evolving so fast yeah. right now around us. Like for me, meditation, you were talking about having Mindfulness, that. Mindfulness, yeah. That was the thing that helped me learn how to be a better parent and better leader. Um, and that was More than the, exercise, absolutely. more than anything. That was the thing. Yeah. With the executive coach, Stanford provided me and members of my team so that we would get along better, you know, shifting toward, you know, a willingness, a trust being able to hear the feedback that I needed um, and developing a mindfulness practice allowed me simply to be myself in any context. And my world, my purpose became not to prove myself to you or you or you or anybody else or to worry about what you're thinking of me, but simply to try to be clear about what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, 
what's moving me, what's concerning me, what interests me, and then how do I want to express myself in a way that might be useful here. I mean, it has become, my world has been, gone from being all about seeking external applause and mm. approval, which made me a micromanager in the workplace because I was so insecure and you know constantly judging other people because I was so insecure. You know, my world is now, and again, not in a self-centered, egotistical sense, I mean, a little bit, but I just know all I can be in charge of if I'm lucky is this right here, you know? And if I can be confident that I'm showing up in the way that I want to in every conversation, in every team meeting, in every, you know, decision-making opportunity, you know, that's, it's brought me tremendous peace and it's made me a better leader mm. and it's brought me a lot of joy and I think it's made me a better parent. We've been talking forever about like learning to be vulnerable yeah, and how much more connected yeah. your team feels to you or your coworkers when you bring yourself to work and right. you really do express who you are. And that a lot of times doesn't happen until you have that confidence because yeah. you can't force vulnerability no. either. So I guess for people who, who are on that journey, who maybe were raised to have an image or still are fighting with burning themselves. Like, what are some things that, that you've learned? Well, one thing I've learned is this is in some ways a function of time. The longer we're here, the more we know ourselves, we know the more, the more we know ourselves in place in our community, in our town, in our industry, our profession on the planet, the more time erodes the sharper edges, you know? So, so when young people ask mm -hmm. me, particularly my audiences around real American, I'll get black, biracial, people of color, queer people, you know, young folks who are like, I am hurting, I'm struggling to perform myself, I'm just, you know, and, and what do I do? And I will say, you know, it's great that you know this, that you're saying this out loud to your own self in a room full of strangers too, wow. You know, this is the beginning. Part of this is simply time. Now you know that that's a concern. How are you gonna... How are you going to act on that? How are you going to become brave enough to simply be without regard to the judgment of others? The older we get, we have the privilege of age, you know, with age and stage in life, even if we haven't ascended to great heights, you know, we still have the privilege that comes with age and wisdom and all of that. And, you know, often we have inhabited a, a role in our communities and our companies where we are a little bit more of an authority figure. We are a little bit more in charge. And, you know, we get the feedback like, okay, you're successful. Okay, you know what you're doing. And that gives us a little bit of feedback loop that says, you know what? Yeah, I am okay. Um, so part of that is, I think, the natural, the natural aging process, the things we learn over time about ourselves and ourselves and in community. What I want to go back to is one of the universal truths that I have come to appreciate about us as humans is that regardless of every identifier, we all want to know we matter. Yeah. We are social beings and we crave to know that we matter to somebody. One of the things I loved about my Stanford students was, you know, when students showed up to do a performance, choir, you know, hip hop, debate, you know, their friends would be in the audience and they would shout, I see you, David, you know, <laughs> and I see you and people's faces would light up. And I'm not saying it's a Stanford thing, but I learned it at Stanford. And that concept, you know, well beyond the verbiage of I see you was sort of the offering was, I am here for you. I'm watching you and what you're doing. I'm delighted by your expression, your experience, whatever it is, I see you. 
And to me, that is an offering that goes like into the eyes and down into the soul where the person starts to feel just like, oh, you know, oh, yeah, okay. We all need that. And I think my work at a meta level is about trying to help humans feel seen. The helicopter parent is preventing that young human from actually being seen for who they are. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just so encroaching. And racism, what I've written about in Real American you know, that bias, that bias, that prejudice that others can have about any of us for any reason can prevent us from feeling seen. The fact of humans needing to matter being universal. And therefore, as a manager, how do you make your team feel they matter enough so that they will bring their best selves to work? When I was merging three disparate offices at Stanford, the recession, 2008, I was dean of freshmen. I had a small team of maybe six my sister organization was advising, and they had 25, 28. This d- dean left for Oregon. The recession happened, so the vice provost merged and put me in charge. So I ran a smaller org, but now I'm in charge of the merger of 36 people, let's say it was total, 34. Well, this big team had been two prior teams two years before, and they were merged on paper, but never culturally. So I had this team and this team that resented my team, you know, didn't like each other. My team resented. Everybody was othering, everybody yeah. else. And I was newly working with my coach, newly working on my stuff, newly attuned to the fact of, you know, humans needing to know we matter. And that gratitude expression is so valuable. And I decided that we were never going to do a great job on behalf of Stanford undergraduates. We weren't going to be as great as we could be if we didn't first want to come to work to be with each other. So I spent a year at merging these three groups in team meetings around discovering that we mattered to each other, giving everybody an opportunity to share the work they did, active listening around that, thanking, you know, building team. And so people weren't coming to work just because it was Stanford, just because it was Stanford undergraduates, but because they enjoyed each other and felt respected, seen, and heard by each other. And that team just soared. Advising was like this shitty thing at Stanford. You know, we were supposed to make it a better thing. And my goal to them was we're going to put advising on the map of what's best about Stanford. We've got the Hoover. We've got the Cantor. We've got this and that. We're going to make advising one of the things that Stanford's going to brag about. You know, that was our big audacious goal. But I knew we wouldn't get there. You know, it wasn't about what's the best way to offer advising to undergraduates? That's a piece of it, the mechanics of how do you advise academically, advise undergrads. But the humans who do the work have to feel that, like, I'm so, I love my colleagues. I love being here. This is awesome, you know? And we did it, and it was great. With Real American, it all follows this natural flow that you're talking about of, like, self-discovery, but having the, the vulnerability to write it, when did that idea really come to you? Like, was it after your first book? So the first thing I want to say is I'm paraphrasing Maya Angelou, who said it wasn't hard to write it. It was harder to keep it inside. I went back to school in 2012, enrolled full-time in grad school to get my MFA in writing at California College of the Arts to write this book on parenting. I had written an op-ed on overparenting in 05, and now it's 2012 been saying for years, I had to write a book, I had to write a book, I've been giving speeches, but I want to write a book. And I decide, I don't think I can write prose worth reading over 300 pages without some guidance. So I went back to school ostensibly to get the training and mentorship that I would need 
to write and pitch and sell a book when I wasn't writing about parenting in my classes, playwriting, fiction writing, poetry, creative nonfiction, race was often coming up, asking for my attention. So when it came time ultimately to do my master's thesis, because I didn't want the parenting book to be my thesis, even though it could have been, I wanted my master's thesis to be something brave and edgy. I went back to school at 44 and I thought, I'm in grad school again. And this time I have chosen this, not because anyone else wanted to, like no one forces you to become a writer. You know, no one's like, you better be a writer, right? So here I am volitionally, and I am going to make the most of this time. And I'm going to write a thesis I wouldn't have been brave enough to write had I not come back to grad school. And the race stuff, I mean, there were a number of topics that I was, not a number, maybe three or four nonfiction thematics that were coming up out of my life, but race was the most dominant. Mm -hmm. And of course, nationally, we were seeing the murder of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and all of these things were happening. And my, in my own house, my own son was becoming a teenager, an African-American presenting teenager, despite his white daddy and my light skin. Like he's unambiguously a man of color. And so the confluence of parenting and national events and me being in writing school, it ripened the urgency in my being that maybe I'm at a place now where I can write well enough about these truths. Now, the challenge is when we write, at least in, you know, in, about in nonfiction, if you're concerned about a topic and you care so passionately about it, you know, the way that I like to describe it is like, if you're so close to it, you can't, you know, all you can see is this, you can't, you know, you can't see the other sides. I've always thought I need to be distant enough from the topic so that I can kind of interrogate it 360 degrees. And my fear was, I got this sun. I've got Black Lives Matter happening all around me. I'm too close to race. The stuff that I've worked out about myself is so recent. I don't think I can properly interrogate it. I'm worried that I don't have the intellectual, emotional vulnerability distance to be a good analyst of my own experience. And my faculty basically said, yeah, 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 give it up. Just write it. You know, I mean, I was on a debt. I had to get my thesis done. They said, just try, you know. And so I kind of took a deep breath and said, all right, I will. And I tried to be as unflinching as possible. The way that you constructed it is unlike other books that I've read. It is poetic, the way that you piece the narrative together. And for people who haven't read it, the, you know, some pages are three sentences and Mm -hmm. some are a couple of pages long. And and can you just walk through a little bit of how the narrative builds for you and what Sure. what that meant to you to pull it together that way? The first thing I'll say is um, I kind of see genre classifications as cages, as boxes that folks have created to make sense of writing. But perhaps because I am biracial, I'm also bisexual, I'm also, I've kind of lived my life kind of outside society's boxes. It's like, these are the boxes humans fit in and there's Julie kind of in between these two boxes or over here on the out on the edge. For the same reason, I don't approach my writing as what genre am I writing? I approach it as what am I trying to tell and what placement on the page and sentence structure or non-sentence structure best supports the words. Mm -hmm. That's kind of big picture. I knew that chronology was fairly important in memoir. And so the book, for the most part, goes in the direction from, you know, my, my early childhood to my present moment with some important jumps backward and some a few jumps ahead. For pacing, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be with the reader 
by my side with my arm around them. So those jumps are ways of me kind of saying, okay, like now I need to tell you something that happened before, or now you need to know that this isn't as bad as it seems because it's going to get, you know. Do you have people like spilling their soul when they meet you? Yes. Because I think you uncovered that all of us have a feeling of being the other in some way. That's right. Even if it's not as profound as what you wrote about. That's right. We all have that. Yeah. And I think to your point about the beauty of vulnerability, and we should give Brene Brown a shout out here for her work on vulnerability. This is universal. We all have this heart that just aches to be held and fears being pierced. And when we can dare to share those vulnerable pieces with one another and have it reciprocated, it's what makes being a human being exquisite. One of the things I found managing a team and being a part of a progressive company, it built a level of empathy in me that was I was super grateful for. It also built some level of fear, almost more than I had before of saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Whether it was around gender or race or there was almost being critiqued at such a level that I I almost felt like as a manager that I I was almost sometimes saying less yeah. instead of more. What are your Well, your... I think we're in a fiercely attuned phase, attuned to human speech and meaning. You know, on the right, they lament the political correctness uh, that has tamped down our dialogue. On the left, we delight in the fact that it's no longer okay to use slurs and, you know, language that demeans other people. But I think we have arrived at a point where almost it's it's sort of this ironic place we've arrived at finally in America. I don't know how long it'll last, and I don't know that it's universally good, but we're in a place right now in communities like yours and mine, certainly, where the greater the intersectionality you inhabit, you know, you're uh, black and queer and trans and poor. Like, okay, that person has the greatest voice in the room. That person in some communities that person has the right to speak and the right to critique the rest of us about our inability to understand or perceive their experience in the way in which our language is inadequate to fully appreciating or respecting them. I'm glad that folks who experience all of those intersectionalities have a voice because they sure as heck haven't had much to date. But I think we're in a place of extreme sensitivity there. And um, it can make folks feel like, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to speak. I'm afraid of being critiqued or I'm constantly getting critiqued. That doesn't feel very productive. So I think, I, I hope we are going to, you know, mature to a place of everybody is different. Everybody does matter. We do well when we listen to one another and, and leave our presumptions and assumptions at the door. And it's okay to let folks know when they've said something that is hard for us to hear, but it's also important for us to, to not present as beings waiting to be wounded by everything, you know? And so I think this gets to, for me, the value of a trigger warning. This is the lawyer in me who believes in First Amendment free speech very much, and the university dean in me who watches what happens on college campuses around free speech and trigger warnings. To me, a trigger Mm -hmm. warning is a heads up. Hey, heads up. We're going to be talking about this really uncomfortable topic and it might hit some of you in a deeply personal way. I want you to have a heads up so you can steal mm. yourself, as opposed to a trigger warning being permission to put your finger in your ears and say, no, 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 I'm not listening, you know, because that hurts me or that offends me. I mean, that's, yeah. to me, the wrong direction. That's really helpful. Switching around again, but going back to school for writing, 
now that you've done it, do you feel like you needed to do it to yes. be able to write? Is effect- yeah. yeah, I think in part because to be a writer, to accomplish that identity for yourself, it's different than being a lawyer. I went to law school. I passed the California bar exam. The state of California said I could practice law. I am a lawyer. Writing doesn't work that way. You know, we can all write. We're all capable of writing as humans. And so it's when are you a writer worth reading? When are you writing in a way that such that you can garner the, an audience of decent size? You know, what is the imprimatur of worth as a writer? Do you have to be published by the New York Times or the New Yorker? Is your own blog enough? Like, what's the... And so within that space of ambiguity about, am I a writer? I think I might want to be a writer. I mean, when I left Stanford, what I said to Dan was, I think I might want to try to do something with my writing. Okay, I went from that very ambiguous declaration to where I am now, which is I'm a writer and I'm a published author and I'm a New York Times bestseller and there's all these things that came with it. But somewhere before all that, I had to claim the identity writer and going back to school to be in community with others who were declaring the same things about themselves and eager to learn from one another mm. you know, and grow with one another, that was a really valuable element of the experience. What have you found as a writer, which I'm assuming is your deadlines are more yourself or is it your, how have you stayed motivated and how has that shift been from a more traditional career? I am terrified and exhilarated pretty regularly. I experience both. I am my own boss. It is up to me. I have a team of people around me who help me do stuff. I have a social media manager. I have a publicist, you know. I have people who, whose work is my work. You know, their work is about getting my work out there. And yet none of them are going to, you know, fire me. I mean, they could fire me, but it doesn't change, right? I'm still the writer, right? right. Their, their decisions don't impact my progress forward um, the way it happens in a traditional workplace. So I have had to self-motivate, and it has not been hard. I'm so new to the identity of writer. I'm 50 now. I got stuff bubbling up out of me just wanting to be told. Now, I know the more I say that I'm looking for wood to knock, like don't jinx myself. Like I've never had writer's block, you know, but I know I will. But right now I'm in this hungry phase of creation, this urgent phase. And so the motivation is pretty there. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the rub. When I got a book deal for a real American from my publisher of the first book, so How to Raise an Adult, people, Holt, said, we will publish Real American and we want a sequel to How to Raise an Adult. So I signed a two-book deal, which is great in terms of, you know, my financial forecasting and all of that, but they want me to write that third book. That third book did not come up and out of my being Mm. the way the first two did, and I'm on deadline for that. Mm. And my deadline is Labor Day, and I'm already feeling the pressure. Labor Day 2018, I'm already feeling that pressure. I'm already starting to construct my January in my head, like, what do I need to do you know, and now that I've written two books, I have a sense of how I am with book writing. So I know the discipline that's going to be required across the months in order to deliver that on time, which I will. Are you talking about what your third book is? Yeah, yet? it's a sequel to the first. Yeah. So it's how to be an adult. It's yeah. uh, hashtag adult. adulting. Yeah, that's kind of, what, yeah, that's what I was talking about at the beginning. Exactly. It's hard to be a good parent if you can't, if you haven't learned how to be an adult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of trying to respond to that critique, um, whether self-imposed or imposed by family or society or employer, that many 20-somethings and even 30-somethings have failed to launch or don't know how to hashtag adult. And I'm trying to provide some guidance. The dedication page currently reads to Y and Z from X, you know? 
Gen Y and Z from Gen X. Like, that's the thing. It's like, here's what I know. Here's what I know and what I want to offer you. I mean, how humbling, how like audacious is it to write a book for a generation of people? But I'm going to try. For parents who, who haven't read your first book and are like, they've got their finger on those first, those 10 schools. What's your message now? Yeah. We have almost literally been duped about what the quote unquote right college for our kid is. We have let a company like US News World Report come up with, you know, an algorithm or a set of metrics that they gather and analyze and spit out as a measure of a college's worth. And it's all simply data about the incoming class. Things like SAT scores can be perfected over time with money. Everybody knows that. And the fact that I think it's 22.5% of a school's rating is the median SAT score of the class. It's just, I think I used this phrase earlier, the narcissism of small differences. I'm quoting, I think it's Professor Barry Schwartz who uses that phrase in his research, but we've gotten so enamored of the false truth of the best colleges list. And it has become the community standard. I heard you say in one of your talks, like the bumper sticker for the parent, which is about us. Yeah, Yeah. it's not about the kid. Right. And so it's simply false that those are the best places. There are plenty of other fantastic places that for all kinds of reasons are better than those places on different, according to different measures. Parents don't have access to the right amount of information, so they rely on shorthands and lists and things. And and that's a bad list. And so when you can come to the truth of that, you know, look at more lists, look at your kid and try to figure out where would my kid thrive? Is my kid a St. Lawrence kind of kid? Or are they a, you know, Syracuse kind of kid? Are they, right? Are they, do they need the sports or do they need the artistic community? Do they need rural? Do they need... There are so many, we do higher education very well in this country. Mm -hmm. We do it. We offer so much. So there are better lists. And when we're willing to move our own ego to the side and say, it's not about that sticker. I want to be able to do my little college acceptance video showing my kid got into Stanford, Harvard, MIT, wherever. And we can actually, you know, delight in our kids learning and growing in an environment that best suits them. Then we can take a deep exhale and say, gee whiz, it's not about getting our kids into those places. My greatest learning came as I was finishing, I was in revisions on how to raise an adult in the fall of 2014. And my son was a sophomore at Gunn High School in Palo Alto, taking all the right classes. We bought this house here so he could do that, right? All of that, right? I gave birth to him at Stanford Hospital because I thought it couldn't hurt. You know, he went to big nursery school. Like, I'm wearing, like, we had, I met Dan at Stanford. Like, we have the whole, I'd probably never said it out loud, but, you know, I expected and hoped that my kid would be gaining admission to places like Stanford that really require a perfect, a flawless childhood stacked with stuff. And this is a kid who reads for pleasure, doesn't do sports or activities, really doesn't. He thinks, he reads, he reads mythology, he reads science, he reads current events. He's just, he's a thinker. He's the kind of kid who gloms toward mm. interesting conversations with adults. He will leave a group of children and come to join us if we're talking about something that interests him and many topics do. And this kid was struggling with the workload. Five hours of homework a night, sophomore year, only fall semester, sophomore year. And I'm thinking we have the rest of fall, all of spring, 
all of junior year into senior year. Like, we can't survive this. It's crushing him. It's too much. And I could watch him trying to keep his head above water and going through the motions and doing the work and doing the work. And and then not even doing the work. I realized he was kind of letting Google Translate tell him the answers to his Spanish. So kind of cheating, you know, just not (laughs) learning. Okay. And I'm like, this is... would have been me. And... uh, we finally decided we needed to ask him if he needed to drop a class. This was after weeks of watching him endure five hours of homework a day and homework on the weekends and and no pleasure reading. He had stopped being the kid who wanted, you know, who brought a book to every meal. And and uh, I'm telling you a very condensed version of the yeah. story, but the long and short of it is I went up to him at midnight one night in his bed and I said, Dad and I are so proud of you. You're working so hard. He's doing well. Just too much work, too much homework. We're so proud. You're working hard. You're doing well. But we wonder if it might be too much, honey. You don't even have time to read books anymore, and that's who you are. Do you think you might need to drop a class? And my kid looked up at me from his bed, and he said, Can I? Don't I have to do all of this, Mom? Don't you want me to? Isn't it what will make you proud? Yeah. And in my head, I was thinking, We bought this house here so you could go there and take every one of those classes and do exceptionally well. But I didn't say that to my son. I looked at him and I said, in some theoretical universe, we wanted you to have access to all of this opportunity. But what matters more than any of that is you and you're struggling and you might even be suffering. Do you think you might need to drop a class? And he brightened a little bit, eyes that I had not seen twinkle for weeks. He said, I'll think about it. And he came down for breakfast the next day with a book under his arm. Uh-huh. And he said, Mom, I think I might need to drive a class. And we yeah. t- began talking through what that would be. Mm. And in that night, on that night, my husband and I became parents who could accept the fact that our kid might not be able to weather these mm. storms. Might Some kids could handle all of that. Our kid can't. And we had to be the parents who cared more about what's right for our kid now rather than, but, 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 if he just, you know... And too many kids are being forced down that path mm. and they're not sleeping, they're not eating meals with family, they don't have time for friendship. Yeah. And it's crushing the life out of them. For people who haven't read my first book, the college thing. Yeah. So I widened my own blinders that night to the truth that I was already writing about in my book, which is that there are plenty of great colleges. I went from talking the talk quite well, that night I began walking the walk and applying that wisdom and truth in my own family. That was Julie Lithcott-Hames, author of How to Raise an Adult and Real American. Powerful words, and she's just getting started. Thanks for listening to our show this week. If you want to find out more or give us your feedback, go to commonthreadsmedia.com or leave us a comment on Instagram or Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks to Alicia Barrett, who edited the show. You've been listening to The Common Threads from Common Threads Media.